Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, not every climate decision for the Pentagon costs big money. There are a whole set of what I uh, characterize as zero-cost decisions. You incorporate climate up front, and one of the big pillars of this plan was uh, climate-informed decision-making. The federal pay raise for 2021 looks like it's locked in. I cannot see a situation where the Senate has a pay raise in its bill, or somehow we get an omnibus and there's a pay raise. I think the chances of Congress saying something either lower or higher than what Biden has already said is very, very low. And surprises for the Pentagon from its audit exercise. They've identified a significant amount of property and inventory and parts that are not visible in their inventory system. It's Friday, October 15th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Chief Data Officers Council will take input on its data processes. A new request for information from the council asks for input on workforce development, data inventories, data sharing, ethics and equity, technology, and what the RFI calls overlooked focus areas. The RFI is open for comments until November 15th. The Army's putting a hold on its augmented reality headset program. The service says May 2022 will be the next operational test date for the integrated visual augmentation system. The Army's developing the system through another transaction authority with Microsoft. The Homeland Security Department's asking for industry insight on wearable technology to improve wellness and ease stress for its workforce. Smart apps that read sleep patterns and send alerts on physical limitations are examples in the solicitation. DHS's Science and Technology Directorate worked with the Silicon Valley Innovation Program on the solicitation. You can read more on these headlines and many more at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is sponsored today by Zoom for Government, designed with relevant certifications and ATOs for the federal hybrid workforce. Zoom for Government offers rich and high-reliability audio and video to work through complex issues and build rapport across government with mission partners and engaging the public. Learn more at karasoft.com zoom. The Defense Department's new climate change assessment says extreme weather costs the department billions of dollars every year. Its new climate adaptation plan details how the department will respond. John Conger is senior advisor for the Council on Strategic Risks and president of Conger Strategies and Solutions. He's former acting assistant secretary of defense for energy installations and environment. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to see you. What's your takeaway from this strategy and what do you think the potential risks and rewards are of implementing it? Welcome. Hey, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, the, uh, the Looking at the Defense Department's plan, which has been long anticipated, uh, it's good to see that they are actually coming out with uh, their adaptation approach to climate change. In other words, um, how do they protect themselves from the changing environment? Uh, this is not about how to protect the environment. It's how to deal with the reshaped environment as climate change impacts operations and geopolitics and, uh, and, the, and the like. So as my takeaway from the plan is that they've actually thought through how climate change is going to affect uh, DOD operations and, and how they manage the, the entire enterprise. And it has metrics and objectives uh, across the enterprise uh, for what they're going to do to to respond and adapt. 
What are some of those metrics that are important in your view for judging the way that the department responds at some point in the future? Yeah, I I think that uh, how they, whether they integrate uh, climate change into professional military education, that they want to have a climate literate workforce. They want people to understand how this fits into their day job. Um, They have uh, implementing resilience at different bases. What's the energy resilience of your installations? That kind of thing. Uh, for infrastructure, but it's not just about infrastructure. I was the infrastructure guy back at DOD uh, uh, back in the day, but uh, there's more than infrastructure here. They talk about being able to adapt equipment to uh, temperature extremes. So we're going to have more oppressive heat in the equatorial regions of the world if we uh, go deploy there. Um, Can you operate in, in, you know, temperatures that are well exceed 100 degrees? and the Arctic's becoming more accessible. So can you operate in the very cold regions as well? Because, uh, you know, as opposed to being someplace you can't go, um, does your equipment uh, still work in those temperature regimes? There's a variety of things. There's a lot of different, uh, you know, sort of objectives that they have included in the report. But I, I love how comprehensive it is. You led the development of something called the 2014 Climate Change Adaptation Roadmap. What's yep. the difference between that and this new one, John? So um, in 2014, we were still trying to get people to appreciate the problem. I think that, um, it, you know, when we did ours, there was, a, there was a good amount of admiring the problem that goes on. And in DOD, we, I've been to dozens and dozens of meetings where we sit and admire a problem but don't talk about solutions. But even in our report, we we spent some time admiring the problem because not everybody had not everybody appreciated and admired that problem. So we had to admire it for them. The um, so there was a, a how, how do you understand how this impacts you? And then um, the other piece of the 2014 plan that I think was really important was, OK, uh, how do we integrate climate change into guidance at DOD? You have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of instructions and directives because that official guidance is how you manage a two million person operation you know you can't expect a lieutenant at the base to know what the assistant secretary said yesterday Uh, you can't expect them all to have twitter accounts and take uh direction from the latest tweet from the secretary of defense so you have to write it all out uh and you have to integrate climate into that official uh sort of operating uh, rule rule book so we did that, and we did we put climate change into a variety of different uh, places across the DoD enterprise and into those instructions. And we even got a DoD directive signed out at the deputy secretary level, which is still in force. Uh, it was never repealed. And so that sort of sets the, the framework for operating in this space. What this plan does is it takes that and sort of stands on the shoulders. It's like, all right, you did all that. Everybody appreciates the problem. Everybody understands where our vulnerabilities are. The guidance is already in place. Now it's time to like do planning and execute. And and we couldn't start with that because you know it'd be sort of uh, ready fire aim as opposed to ready aim fire. We've done the ready aim. Now they need the fire. All right. What is the fire in your view? What do you see as happening differently in uh, the period moving forward that the person on the front lines or a civilian in an installation, but not necessarily in Washington? will see happen differently as a result of this? 
So there's a bunch of different things. I'm gonna I'll I'll gravitate towards installations just because that's uh, you know I have more granularity there. But we can talk about a variety of different uh, places for this. But let's talk about installations for a second. So now um, now that the the climate change adaptation rules are in place and uh, services have all issued in the intervening years uh, guidance on how to do climate change adaptation at the base level. Now you're you're getting instructions to say all right. Um, go, go execute. If you need resilience money, we'll actually program it, but you have to do the planning. And oftentimes that planning is base by base. And so, uh, a good example of what I'd like to see happen in more places. And I expect to see happen in more places is, um, when the Navy did their shipyard, uh, investment plan, the 20 year plan, mm -hmm. they said they need $20 billion right at the top of that list was a climate project. Now, this wasn't a climate investment plan. It was an investment plan. But they uh, right at the top of the list was, in a, uh, was a climate project where they said they needed higher flood walls around the dry dock at the Norfolk shipyard because sea level rise was putting their uh, multi-billion dollar assets at risk. When you open up those uh, submarines, for example, and the nuclear reactor is open to the air, if you get that thing flooded, you're, you're going to pay a big price. And so in that context, uh, they said we need... $49 million for, uh, to lift these uh, flood walls. Well, the, you don't get there without the planning. And, and so they did that for the shipyards and they got the planning done and they said, this risk is too high. I need to buy down this risk. And so they did the project. It, they, it was actually during the Trump administration. They, they, they did this plan. They uh, requested the money. They got the money from the Congress and, and they awarded the contract already and they're executing. So the point is, is that there are projects like that that they're going to start to find uh, as soon as they do their base by base planning across the enterprise. So that's one example. Another example that I think you're going to start to see is, um, you, know, you know, there are a whole set of what I uh, characterize as zero cost decisions. You incorporate climate up front. And one of the big pillars of this plan was uh, climate informed decision making. But if you incorporate climate up front, you can avoid costs in the future. So uh, Strategic Command uh, was a billion-dollar building out at Offutt Air Force Base. Uh, and they uh, built it at a higher elevation than a lot of the base. And so when Offutt Air Force Base flooded uh, and, you know, Missouri River overflowed the banks, overflowed the levees, uh, took out about a third of the base, um, the, the STRATCOM headquarters that they had just built and was shiny and new didn't get impacted. And because they made a decision as to where to build it that was at a higher elevation level. That, you know, may have cost some uh, minor amount of money for, you know, infrastructure, whatever the utilities are uh, as they decide where to place the thing. But it's basically a zero cost decision that is informed by the threat and the risk. They need to do that going forward on everything. Uh, and, I, and, and so I think that's uh, that's the epitome of climate informed decision making that I hope to see going forward where we avoid costs uh, up at the front end of decision-making. John Conger, thanks very much for your insight. It's great to have you on the program. My pleasure. You can read more on the climate adaptation strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming on today's Daily Scoop podcast, the Pentagon's audit reveals some surprises for the services. The former acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Harker, explains later in the show the Daily Scoop Podcast's lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. 
This year's cost of living adjustment for Social Security is one of the highest in decades, but it doesn't look like that's going to track with the federal employee pay raise. Jessica Clement is Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, it's great to see you again. It's wishful thinking, I know, on my part. There was never a chance that a five point whatever percent uh, increase that Social Security recipients get would be in the federal budget. But what are we talking about when it comes to what we're seeing with the budget negotiations that are really stop and start right now, Jesse? Welcome. Hi, Francis. Thanks for having me. God, if I only had a crystal ball in the budget <laughs> negotiations, right? These years are, 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 are great fun, right? My uh, CSRS members are looking at a 5.9% cost of living adjustment next year, while my federal employee members are looking at an average of 2.7%. Um, there's certainly been years where feds have gotten a raise and the COLA has been zero. So um, never is it easy to make everyone happy. So I think one of the things that would be helpful is to talk about how the COLA is calculate, calculated versus why the how the pay raise is calculated. Because the cost of living adjustment is a formula that Congress said this is the formula for the COLA. So that is not dictated by Congress every year or the president or anyone else. The BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, does a formula and the COLA is this is this. I think this is probably the best case scenario because it keeps that cost of living adjustment out of the hands of the political whims of Congress. The federal employee pay raise is meant to, so this tracks, COLA tracks inflation, cost of goods and services, the things you and I spend our money on. The federal employee pay raise is supposed to track with private sector wages. So it is a different formula for a different purpose. COLA is meant to keep seniors' uh, quality of life on par with how inflation moves and the cost of goods and services. Federal employee pay raise is supposed to keep federal salaries on par with how private sector wages are moving. And in the 12 months leading up to the president's budget request in late May, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics said private sector wages moved an average of 2.7%. So that's why we're talking about 5.9 and 2.7. Biden sent his uh, memo to Congress at the end of August with his um, intentions of a average 2.7% raise, 2.2% across the board, 0.5% for locality pay. At this point in time, unless Congress does something other than that, Biden cannot change his mind on that 2.2%. He is locked in. Feds at a minimum are going to get 2.2%. He can, however, change that locality pay adjustment before the end of December if he sees fit. So what we see is what we see. And what yes. we're going to see is what it sounds like I to think me. so. Okay. I do not foresee a scenario given that the House appropriations bill that would contain the pay raise was totally silent on the pay raise. And in that scenario, action defers to the president. I cannot see a situation where the Senate has a pay raise in its bill or somehow we get an omnibus and there's a pay raise. I think the chances of Congress saying something either lower or higher than what Biden has already said is very, very low. I, I would say we're locked in at this point in time, but this is Washington and we all know yeah. that there's not a deal <laughs> until there's a deal. Right? right, right. What you say, though, makes sense about where we are versus where it's possible or likely that we will go. Okay. The other element that I think is interesting to track increase wise was I think 
a lot of people breathed sighs of relief when we saw what the overall average increase was going to be in FEHBP premiums for 2022. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. Um, you know, we, of course, were like, okay, you know, it could have been worse. Yeah. We are looking at over a year and a half now of insurance companies covering mandatory testing and vaccines and all of these costs that did not exist, um, you know, prior to 2020. Um, so I, I was I was very nervous about the FEHBP increase. wasn't wasn't sure what it was going to look like. I think um, a lot of people, while they will not be happy with how their individual plans moved, because no one is happy when their health insurance costs goes up. Um, I think this is in the situation that we are living in. This is probably the best case scenario. All right. What else should people be paying attention to regarding paying benefits over the next maybe month or two, Jesse? Um, I think what happens with the return to work plans and the vaccine mandates is going to be very interesting. I am sure that November 22nd will not be the end of that discussion. Um, we're trying to prepare our members. Uh, we're looking at hopefully doing a webinar later this year on what happens if you leave federal service before you're eligible to retire. We're fielding a lot of questions. You know, can I take a disability retirement? Those types of things. I think also I would keep an eye on December 3rd. I'm certainly keeping an eye on December 3rd. We not only have the expiration of the continuing resolution, we now have the debt limit increase tied to that as well, which, you know, Congress, not surprising, they tied it to tie the two together. Um, this is all but ensuring chaos, I would say, in that short time period between after Thanksgiving and December 2nd. So just to be clear, the November 22nd date that you put out there is for the vaccine mandate when everybody's supposed to have both shots or if both they've got J&J. And and two weeks. Right. Yep. And uh, that's right. And the December 3rd is when the CR expires and we'll see that uh, train wreck again. CR expires and the debt limit increase that Congress has passed, the president has not yet signed, um, is expected to run out on or around December 3rd. Some some estimates put it in January. Uh, nonetheless, keeping those two things tied together, meaning an increase in the debt limit, is almost all but certain to be part of the negotiations we're talking about either the next continuing resolution or an omnibus. One phrase comes to mind, the fun never ends. Say it all the time. Thank you, my friend. It's great to see you, Jesse. Thank you. You too. You can read more about the 2021 pay raise and next year's FEHBP premiums in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Cyber Week launches Monday. CyberScoop has a ton of events lined up next week for the Cyber Festival, both virtually and in person. Lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government will be there. You can see the calendar and register now at cyberweek.us. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Monday's program, our Cyber Week coverage kicks off with Brandon Wales the executive director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and Suzanne Spaulding, the former leader of NPPD, the predecessor of CISA at DHS. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The military services at the Pentagon are about to receive data on their latest full department audit. The Pentagon is the last agency still seeking a clean audit opinion. 
Tom Harker is principal at the Harker Group. He's former assistant secretary of the Navy for financial management and comptroller, former acting DOD comptroller, and former acting secretary of the Navy. In the latest installment of my Leaders Lunch series, he explains where the department is in its ongoing audit cycle. You had a fiscal year that began 1 October of last year and just ended on 30 September this year. Now they're doing the financial reporting process. Financial reporting includes the audit report. But the auditors start work um, you know, in January and they continue their work throughout the November, December timeframe, uh, continuing to test, evaluate both the um, face of the statements and then all the internal controls around the business processes that underlie those statements. Mm -hmm. and so the audit cycle, the financial reporting season right now, uh, it's a very busy time. What's your sense of where the Navy is, how the Navy is doing in the audit process? The Navy continues to make progress, um, much more so than most other elements of the Department of Defense. Uh, they've had a strong focus on audit uh, for the last several years. Uh, their current CFO is dedicated towards continuing to make improvement, and they're on track to remove material weaknesses both inside the Navy and the Marine Corps this year. Uh, when you look at the process, the one metric that makes the most sense to use is the elimination of material weaknesses in internal control. And um, the Navy consistently over the last three years has removed material weaknesses, uh, which is getting closer towards that goal of getting a clean audit opinion. But more importantly, what it does is it provides them the opportunity to improve their business processes, uh, increase efficiency, increase effectiveness, and eliminate um, things that they weren't really aware of until they start diving into the process. Mm -hmm. so. Has that been maybe not the most valuable element of the audit, but one of the most valuable elements is understanding what you had that you didn't know you had? Yes, very much so. For the Navy, uh, they've spent a lot of time looking at property. Uh, they've identified a significant amount of property and inventory and parts that are not visible in their inventory system. And so they've had uh, various commands where they'll have cuff ledgers or you know clipboards that'll say, we have this many of these things, but they don't have the visibility so they can apply those things across the fleets. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to be able to have that visibility on parts so that you have your right ordering information so that you can get the best um, use of your dollars. Uh, you know, the former Vice Chief Admiral Bill Moran was out on a trip in Lemoore, California, when he found uh, a number of canopies that somebody had a, on a clipboard, but they weren't in the system. And the canopies were a choke point for strike fighter readiness. So there's a lot of effort that's been tied um, with getting better data, getting better process understanding, and it comes from the audit and also mm -hmm. the operational improvements that the uh, Navy's working hand-in-hand. What's the state of the curation of that data? Once you have it, how accessible is it for decision makers that aren't at the point where the data was collected? Well, that's a great question. I think the, um, the Navy uh, has been working this where they've done a, um, an effort to go in and identify what's the world of data that's out there. And that was put a little bit on hold because of COVID. But prior to COVID, that identified over $3 billion worth of inventory and parts that weren't in the system. They've started putting those into the system uh, and they've been updating the inventory system so that you have visibility on those. And they've issued a number of those parts uh, for current requisitions. Uh, and they're issuing them free so that it actually saves a lot of money uh, for the Navy and decreases their operating expenses each year. How confident are you about the system that's in place, not just at the Navy, but that you've shared with your colleagues at the other services, that 
this trajectory will continue to go up as it sounds as that it is rather than backsliding? I'm talking about the broader audit process. Well, I think the, um, the process is definitely going to continue. Uh, it's a requirement by law. It's not just the CFO Act, which all the civilian agencies have, but the NDA has specific requirements about audit, and the agencies go, or the services go report to Congress on a semi-annual basis. Um, the OSD Comptroller's Office has a scorecard where they're measuring and managing this. And as you know, if you measure something, you see performance improve. Mm -hmm. And so the Navy and the Marine Corps are the two services that have really made a lot of progress. Last year, DISA made progress on their um, their working capital fund audit. Uh, But you see the smaller agencies improving as well. Uh, You're also seeing a a push to try to get the... um, quantify the benefit of it. So you can see, here's the cost, but here's the benefit. And on the Navy side, you know, it's been um, huge benefits that are quantifiable by improved operational efficiency, uh, improved use of resources, uh, better visibility into where resources are being used and how those things are happening. So it's definitely something that's added a lot of value. I know that you don't want to speak for Mike McCord, but I'll put you in his job for a moment and ask you, if you're him, when all of that data comes in, when all of those reports come in to the comptroller's office, what would you look at first, not just regarding the Navy, but the other services too, and the other components too, to see whether the progress that's happening is sufficient, whether you're satisfied with the progress that's happening, Tom? So I think uh, Mike's doing a great job there, and I think what he's probably going to be looking for is who's eliminating material weaknesses, uh, who is taking legacy systems offline and who is able to deliver the things they said they were going to deliver. You know, for the Navy, I know they were able to go from nine different general ledger systems down to two by the end of this year. And so that's something that they've been working on for a while. Mm-hmm. That saves costs. It also improves cybersecurity because all of those legacy systems were written in COBOL or Fortran. I mean, some, some kind of dinosaur programming <laughs> language that, you know, that I may have learned when I was an undergrad, but <laughs> probably isn't what we should be recording logistics and financial information in. And yeah. so taking those systems offline makes us more secure. Uh, that's a huge win for the department. Uh, clearing material weaknesses gets us closer to an audit opinion. And then also seeing the uh, flow of money, having better visibility to where people are spending it, how they're spending it, what they're buying with it, so you can answer better questions. It's something that leadership definitely looks for. Mm-hmm. When you talk about taking legacy systems offline, are you talking primarily about back office things like financial management yes. or other things too? So I know the Navy was starting something uh, a while ago that's still continuing. They call it Operation Cattle Drive, where they're taking a lot of the legacy business systems offline, not just the accounting ones, um, but the logistics, HR, others. And they're focusing on uh, eliminating those uh, through a combination of just starving the resources, uh, forcing people to adopt to the new systems, and then removing their authority to operate, using the CIO's authority in conjunction with the CFO's authority to squeeze those systems where they actually people stop using them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing that lasts longer than a government program or a government <laughs> system, uh, but by starving it of resources and removing the authority to operate on the network, you can actually take these systems offline. Mm-hmm. That really improves their cybersecurity. Uh, in addition to serving in the, as the financial management leader of the department after the transition uh, last year, you also, well, this year, uh, after the transition this year, you also served as the acting secretary um, what did you learn in that job that maybe you didn't know as a financial management head? It's one of those things where um, 
the more senior you become in an organization, the less access to raw data and information you have. And when you're the secretary, it's even more controlled. And so um, what I what I didn't really understand was just how challenging it was to get information. Uh, the other piece is also that you know when you have the secretary of the Navy overseeing the commandant and the CNO and the operational Navy and Marine Corps, there's got to be that link between those three to make sure that all of them are aligned as to what's important, what matters, and what the focus is. And uh, one of the mistakes I made when I was assistant secretary was not getting the secretary to help me as much as I should have. My whole focus had been, I'm leading this, I'm fine, I don't need his assistance. But a couple of words, if he'd had them with the CNO or their commandant, might have helped a little more with some of the change management piece, which, as everyone knows, is the hardest part of uh, driving change. Tom, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Francis. There's more on the DOD audit cycle in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thank you for doing that. When we get high ratings and good reviews, that helps more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The leader of CISA, Brandon Wales, kicks off our Cyber Week coverage on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening.